listener production. Have you had a miscarriage? If you haven't, chances are you know someone who has. Every five minutes in Australia, someone has a miscarriage and that runs to an annual total of about 150,000 families affected. Today on Feed, Play, Love, we're talking about the most common pregnancy complication. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. We know that miscarriage is something that impacts many, many women. And yet, what do we really know about it? Most of us wouldn't know what to do if we miscarried, where to get support or how to move on. And those of us, like myself, who haven't miscarried, don't know how to support our friends who have. Today, I'm talking to Isabel Oderberg, who has written Hard to Bear, Investigating the Science and Silence of Miscarriage, a book that's a piece of journalistic investigation, but also something that was inspired by her own experience. Hi, Isabel. Welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you are a journalist with many, many years of experience. You've written about all sorts of topics. That's all short form. Taking on a book is a huge endeavour. Why was this the book you decided to write? So I never, ever wanted to write a book. Through my losses and my um, having my living babies, you know, being a journalist and being quite connected in that industry, a lot of people, and being open about my losses, a lot of people were saying, you know, could you write about it? Could you do this? Could you do that? And I really didn't want to do it. There was some kind of superstition in me that I was like, I want to be at the end of my journey. I don't want to write about it now because I don't know where my journey is going to lead and I need perspective. And then when I finished that phase of my life, I kind of started investigating and going like, why are things the way that they are? And I was getting progressively more frustrated by these columns that were like, I had a miscarriage and we need to talk about miscarriage more, but without actually going into, well, why don't we talk about it? Where does that come from? Has it always been that way? And being a sort of a questions person, I had all these questions and I started to research and I was like, hang on a sec. Oh no, this isn't a feature. It's not even a series. Oh no, it's a book. (laughs) Oh gosh. How did I end up here? So, you know, I sat down and that's how my book came to be. I must say, when you said you'd seen all these articles saying we need to talk about miscarriage, but then it kind of stopped there. I have to say, I completely agree with that. I feel like we are talking about miscarriage, but only in so far as that we know that it's common and that we know that we know nothing, which is why when I saw your book, it's a very strange thing to say about a book that's all about miscarriage, but I was actually really excited because I thought I've never seen a book that only deals with this topic. Before we start though, I wonder if you think it's possible to actually tell this story without personal insight. I know you have the research and it looks at it scientifically, but then I wonder, would it be a complete book without the empathy and compassion that you've included? That is such a difficult question. And I mean, journalists do that every day, right? Like, you know, we write about lots of different issues that we don't have direct experience of. I definitely feel like I tried as hard as I could to put my personal experience aside when I was doing my research and be driven especially in certain areas by science and by fact and not by grief and not by emotion. And when I decided to write the book, certainly some of the people who very were very, very supportive at the start 
one of the things that I know that they were excited about, and this is within the medical um, community, was that I was saying, where do I get the data? Where do I get the science? Where do I get the research? Because I think a lot of people that are driven by, you know, personal experience are often driven by emotion and driven, and, and that's not a bad thing. It's just a different way right? Mm. Whereas as a journalist, uh, yes, I have personal experience, but equally I'm trying to be as even-handed as I can be and also not make these sort of assumptions that my experience is everyone else's experience. Like there are people who are relieved when they have a miscarriage for a variety of reasons. There are people who are gender diverse, who have a completely different experience to me. There are people who compartmentalize in a way that means that they're not really grief stricken, like they're sad, but they're not any more than sad. And, oh, well, I move on and I'll try again, you know? Um, And then there are people who are pushed to the brink of suicide. Like it's, so my personal experience doesn't mean that I know every experience, but I definitely felt like it was important to give some context of my own story, but not let that be the whole prism through which we could view this issue. Just a little bit of what, how I'm coming to this and why I'm coming to this. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, yeah. it does. And it, it plays out in the book too. I mm. think it's very clearly defined, obviously, when it's giving that personal insight and when you're going into the research. Miscarriage itself is defined as a pregnancy that ends before 20 weeks. And so many women are told, don't tell anyone you're pregnant before you get that 20-week scan in case you miscarry. What do you think of that advice? Well, it's very interesting because I was in a support group and I was on, I don't even remember what number pregnancy it was, but I, you know, I was pregnant again, basically. And I went into the group and I said, when do you tell people? Like, so this was for people who'd had recurrent miscarriage. And I said, you know, when do you tell people that you're pregnant? Because we all know that 12 weeks actually is arbitrary. It doesn't mean anything as, you know, in a similar way, 20 weeks doesn't mean that you're, you know, you're not clear as the, the the lost community knows, until you're holding a live baby in your arms, really, you know, that's unfortunately the case. So I asked that question and the response that came was, you're pregnant, enjoy it. We never know how long a pregnancy is going to last and what the end result of a pregnancy will be. So you're well within your rights to just enjoy it. Um, and I told everyone. And from that point, I just made a decision that I was just going to enjoy each pregnancy for what it was, which is difficult because I was racked with anxiety and fear. My mum found it really confronting that I was telling people when I was like eight weeks pregnant because she's very much of the generation that, you know, you don't tell anyone until you're 12 weeks. But I think that there's pros and cons and it's really up to each person. I was in a position where I needed my, at least my friends to know if I was going to have another loss because I needed them around me. I had another, chi- I had a living child that I would need help with and all the rest of it. So that was my choice, but there is no right and there's no wrong. There's what's right for you is right for you. End of story. So that was my decision. Yeah. You say you had recurrent miscarriages. Am I right? It was seven in total? Miscarriages? Yeah. So it was seven losses. The last one technically was a termination for medical reasons, but would have ended in miscarriage. It's just easier for the sake of you know, like detail to just say seven losses, but yes, yes. And you do explain in the book the different types of miscarriage, but we don't need to go into it here, the different types of miscarriages that can occur. But even for me reading that part of the book and going, oh, I had no idea that there are different types of miscarriage. That's the level of 
silence, I guess, around this, did you get to the bottom of why it is we don't know anything about miscarriage, really? And when I say we don't know, I mean general society, of course. There's so many reasons and like, you know, I could do a separate podcast for an hour just on this issue. I could probably do a whole series on this issue. I find it fascinating. Um, it was not always like this. Um, there were, pe- and it has changed through history. So there are, um, and it also is culturally variable, right? But as a sort of simple catch-all answer, um, I think that it's a combination of of some of the stigma of abortion, which has become over history, become the two have become entwined, even though they are two very different things, um, but they're related in some ways. And then also society's general discomfort with grief and menstruation, because ultimately what we are talking about is bleeding from your vagina. So I think though the discomfort around those things have made it even more difficult for people to talk about. We're not good at grief in general in society. And then there's also this other kind of, um, this other component, which is what, is it a loss? Like, does it actually qualify as a loss? And if it is a loss, then what do I say? And I always tell people, I'm sorry for your loss is a really good thing, but you also need to be led by the person who is telling you, like, if they're clearly upset and calling it a loss, then you call it a loss. If they're not upset, you know, um, you can say, look, I'm really sorry. And they'll say, oh, I'm fine. You know, what you need to, listening is core here. <laughs> listening is the way. And if you're listening, you'll know. But if you're not listening, which is unfortunately how a lot of people behave, then you're not going to know the best and most appropriate way to react. You quote a, a doctor that you were speaking to who had the reason why he'd started to work in this area is because he saw the difference uh, in treatment for those who had had a stillbirth to those who'd had a miscarriage. And I thought that was a really um, kind of upsetting anecdote about how we view it, but also really clear in terms of what you just said, where people say, well, is it a loss? Because we know how common it is. Is that part of the problem that while we know that one in four pregnant women will experience a miscarriage, is that why we just go, oh, it it always happens, you'll be right? Well, it's funny because all of the research tells us that the traumatic fallout from a miscarriage can be as bad as what people experience with stillbirth. And there can be implications for relationships going forward, you know, psychological issues with the birth parent but also, you know, issues in subsequent pregnancies and issues in the way that we parent subsequent living children. So we know, we have all the science to show that it's really, really traumatic. I think that certainly a degree of this is confusion because so many people, including myself, are so pro-choice. And so you're always told, you know, it's not a baby, it's not a baby, it's a cluster of cells, right, within that debate. And in terms of my losses, I can absolutely look you in the eye and say, in the medical definition, yes, it was a cluster of cells. The thing that makes it really interesting about miscarriage is that there is this sort of psychological phenomenon of personification. And so even though it's a cluster of cells biologically, in my head, I had named that child. I had seen their face. I knew whether they were going to be a doctor or a lawyer. Doctor. I was going <laughs> to, um, you know, I was, <laughs> we'd already started thinking about names and, and, you know, and part of that is society. Like when you think about how people make birth announcements with the positive pregnancy test, 
sometimes that positive pregnancy test will be, say, sitting in a pair of baby shoes, right? Now, clothing is the ultimate tool of personification, right? That person who's done that announcement like that, they're already picturing the feet that go in that sh- in those pair of shoes, right? And so there is no tension. You can be very much pro-choice and mourn a pregnancy loss. And that was a huge journey for me. And I was so relieved when I found, well, there was only a very small amount of literature on it because I don't think it's properly been examined, but when I found literature explaining how the two can coexist, I was so relieved because I felt like such a hypocrite because I was like, on the one hand, you know, if I was pregnant with a pregnancy I didn't want, I wouldn't hesitate to to have an abortion. But on the other hand, this is a pregnancy I want and I'm six weeks along and I can't get out of bed because my heart is broken. So finding the, a place where those two could coexist was a really big job for me and that's something I explore in the book, both scientifically, psychologically, and also culturally, is the personification of pregnancy. Well, there's also the physical, right? Because we often talk about how women or the carrying parent will feel that connection so much sooner than the partner and that the partner's just, you know, toddling along and life's all the same, but you, in your interior, everything's changing because you can feel your body change. I know when I was pregnant and I didn't, I was in my head going, well, I don't know that this is going to stay or if, you know, am I going to make it to holding my own baby? And in my head, I was like, I can't separate from that. Even when I was feeling, I mean, if you get morning sickness, there is no way of escaping what's happening in your body when you're carrying a child. So I just find it would be impossible to separate yourself from the outcome if you're wanting that to see that pregnancy through. Yeah, and I think that the context in which that happens, which is a society that's like, you know, making pregnancy announcements with little shoes or little clothes or a T-shirt that says I'm going to be a big brother or I'm going to be a little brother or whatever, you know, all of those things combine to make it really difficult to kind of separate yourself. And also as a birthing parent, you're constantly told, you know, um, from the minute, well, it's actually even from before you get pregnant, right? Because you're like, go on the folic acid, get healthy, don't be overweight, all of this, you know, um, arbitrary things that you're told to do that probably make very little difference um, for a variety of reasons. I'm not saying that you shouldn't take folic acid. You absolutely take folic acid before <laughs> you're trying to pregnant. Sorry. I'm just saying that I think, you know, we're taught to be carers before we're even pregnant, right? And yeah. then and then you're told, okay, you're pregnant. Don't eat sushi. Don't eat cold meat. Don't eat cheese. Um, don't exercise too hard. Don't lift heavy things. You are told you have to be a carer. You have to be a carer. And then you're told, oh, it's, it's, it's just a cluster of cells. Don't worry about it. It's like, hang on a sec. Like I can't, you know, it is really difficult to separate the two. I definitely feel like we can do a better job of preparing people and knowing that they're not alone because I was quite shocked when I had my first miscarriage, how many of, because I was very open about it. My friends were like, oh, I had one, I had one, I had one. I was like, why did we not talk about this at the time? Like why, how does, you know, and obviously you can't, you don't want to force anyone to disclose if they're not comfortable. But I suspect that at least a proportion of those people didn't share because they didn't think they were welcome to, not because they chose not to. Does that make sense? So it's like differentiating the two and letting people know that actually you can share it as much or as little as you want and that it will help the people that come after you to go, oh, okay, I'm not alone. I have people that have been through this or whatever, you know? I think part of that conversation, being able to land with someone in an appropriate way, is to give the 
person listening some insight into what a pregnancy loss can feel like. If you had to explain that to someone, just let's say it's the one time, it's not something you have to go out and say every single time, but if there was one way of explaining how you felt when you miscarried, could you explain that to us? I can only speak to my experience, but I can safely say that there seems to be a lot of commonality among the people, and I interviewed hundreds of people for this book. So I dare say there's quite a few people who feel the same, but I hasten to say not all. Really important to understand that. For me, it was abject failure as a woman and as a mother and as a partner and guilt. Like, what did I do wrong? Why did this happen? And I think also kind of maybe a lot of anger as well, anger at myself, anger at the world, anger at, um, in some losses, anger at the baby, because I was like, why couldn't you just have done what you were supposed to do and grow? Completely irrational, I hasten to add, but probably goes to the point of like, I definitely see them as babies, not as clusters of cells. Like I was talking to them, I was giving them instructions, I was, you know, all that sort of stuff. So um, you know, you have to grow now, like focus on growing and, you know, and don't get distracted and, you know, um, <laughs> focus, focus. If you're going to be a doctor, you have to learn focus. So, um, so yeah, so th- I definitely feel like guilt is a huge thing. And like that comes down to what I was saying about birthing parents are told you have to be a carer from before you're even pregnant. I was told so many times in my twenties, like don't smoke cigarettes because you won't be able to get pregnant. You know, like we're, we're kind of geared like that right? From a really early age. So when it fails or when it, when it fails, is not the right word. When it doesn't work out the way that you expect or hope that it will immediately, you're like, okay, it's on me. And like, let's face it, people with vaginas get blamed for everything, right? (laughs) I mean, it's always our fault. And it's funny because even in the science of miscarriage, sperm is scientifically proven in in many cases to have a 50% contribution to the miscarriage rate or or issues with the sperm, I should say, 50% or more. But the number of people that have recurrent miscarriages whose whose partner's sperm is is checked is is not, not high. So, you know, like even scientifically people kind of pass the buck and go, oh, well, you know, it's your, your eggs are old. That's always the answer. Your eggs are old. And there is something in that because obviously we do know that miscarriage risk goes up with age, but no one's talking about the old sperm. Hi, let's talk about that too, you know. And what about the grief? Because you mentioned there that some people are a bit blasé about it because it's so common. And of course, as you say, this is just your experience, but can you explain the grief of that that loss? Um, so with my early miscarriages, it was just like, my baby's gone. I've, I've lost my baby. And uh, especially with my th- third miscarriage, I uh, passed that miscarriage naturally. I didn't have a DNC, which is a surgical procedure to end a pregnancy that's miscarrying. So I definitely, like with that one, I was like, I, I was in the hospital screaming, like the baby, get, like the baby's coming out of me. Like, I don't know what to do. Got very freaked out. But later on, there was a lot of fear around, like when I, when I, when I did get to a later stage in a pregnancy, like, you know, 12 weeks or 11 weeks or whatever, 
there was a huge amount of, oh my gosh, I've got to start again. Like now I've got to start again. So once the grief kind of sort of, I was able to cope with the grief of actually losing another baby, it was like, oh my gosh. And now I've got to start from the beginning again. And uh, I've got to think about my cycle and I've got to think about, you know, all the vitamins and I've got to talk to my partner about, you know, like we're going to have to start trying again. And it was, it was really a lot. Can I just say, I'm really sorry that you. you had to go through that. Thank you. Yeah. It, we all have our own journeys. That was mine. I don't know mm. why, I don't know why, but I'm really glad. I like to think that there was a, there's a reason for everything. And my reason is so that I can make this better for other people. You mentioned there that you miscarried naturally in inverted commas, one of the pregnancies. And I actually think that is one of the things we really have no understanding of is what happens with a miscarriage physically to a woman. It's like, it's a word. And I don't know, people might think it's just a slightly heavy period and then you move on. Um, can you talk us through, obviously they're all different, but can you talk us through generally what happens with a med miscarriage? So it really depends on the kind of miscarriage because um, in some miscarriages like um, uh, an, an embryonic uh, miscarriage where there is no embryo, where the embryo has been reabsorbed to the body, that's slightly different. So that's quite common. That's where it's it, the, the slightly old-fashioned word for it is a blighted ovum and that's where you you might still have a lot of the symptoms of pregnancy. So you might still have morning sickness or sore breasts or any of those things. And then you go for the scan and, and there's a sack and no baby. You know, with something like that, um, you're not, I'm try, trying to choose my words very carefully, but you know, you might not pass um, an embryo as such or a fetus. And then you, you know, there's the later miscarriages that might happen around 19 weeks or even 12 weeks. And, and that's a different scenario. And, and sometimes with those miscarriages, you actually have to labor if they're 19 weeks that you'd, you'd probably be laboring 12 weeks. Um, it sort of depends on, so when they do the scan, they can see at what gestation, if there is an, an embryo or fetus, whatever you want to call it, depending on the gestation, they'll be able to see what week it, it stopped growing at, right? It, um, if it's present. And so that will dictate a lot of how you are managed. I think in a lot of ways, that was my worst loss, that third one. And I was like, maybe eight or nine weeks, I think. And I started bleeding and I went to hospital and that in itself was a trauma because they wouldn't scan me because they said, oh, you're not an emergency and we can't, we can't do an internal scan. We need an ultrasonologist and you're not an emergency. So we're not going to pay to call an ultrasonologist in. So they were like, just come back Monday. Oh. And I was like, like, what? Like, you want me to go away and not be sure if the baby's going to come out of me? Like, I don't understand. Like I was just, yeah. So I went home and I was in pain and on the toilet and eventually there was a like a feeling, a whoosh, if you like, and I had my hands there and I caught the fetus and the and the uh, sack and uh, and I saw my baby and I panicked and I flushed it down the toilet, which is actually what happens with a lot of pregnant pregnancies and it, that in itself can lead to a lot of guilt because you're like, you know, and oh my gosh, that was actually very, very common among people that I spoke to. Like I didn't know what to do. And I, so I flushed and I feel so guilty and I wish I'd had the opportunity to take what many call, but I do not anymore call the products of conception. I now call it pregnancy tissue on the guidance of Tommy's, which is in the UK, which is probably the leading research and care body in the world for early pregnancy loss. 
So, I, you know, a lot of people say to me, I would have liked the opportunity to catch that pregnancy tissue, know how to store it and then have some kind of ceremony because that's the other thing is there is no ceremony. When you are pregnant, there's your reintegration into society as a mother. There are all these things set up or as a parent, I should say, keep it gender neutral. Um, there are all these things that are, that are that, so that you can reintegrate as a parent, right? So there's baby showers and there's naming ceremonies and, you know, all cultures have their own way of welcoming the child and the parent back in. But with miscarriage, it's just like, well, what am I? Because I'm not a mum and I'm not, I'm not a parent, but I'm also not not a parent because like, like there's a lot of confusion. And so certainly now all states have miscarriage certificates, but I, I personally think that's it's it's really personal how you want to commemorate or not commemorate. That's absolutely fine too. You don't have to do anything but the options just aren't there at the moment. I had one interviewee who's in the book who um, actually had a genetic issue that was causing problems with her babies. And the first time she was further along and so the hospital helped her, they had a funeral, all that stuff. With her second loss, it was earlier and so she wasn't actually under the care of a hospital yet and she caught the baby had the good sense to put the baby in the freezer because she knew that she wanted, you know, the baby was was born sleeping, had the good sense to put the baby in the freezer so that she could do some ceremony, went to a funeral home and they said, oh, we can't deal with you because we don't know if a, a crime has been committed. Oh, no. Um, And so, like, these are the things is there's no, I mean. The, the most appalling thing about that to me is the thought of you being in that bathroom, catching your own baby alone with no support, no medical support. Um, it's horrifying. Yeah. And there's a lot of pain with some miscarriages. Like others are like, you said, like a heavy period or there's no pain at all. And then, then there's the other, I mean, I, one of my losses, I was in a huge amount of pain. That was probably the most physically painful. Um, and you know, I had a private obstetrician at that point. So I was able to get in touch with their office and say, I need pain. I need help. Like I'm on my fifth miscarriage, this really hurts. And they were able to help me, but I really am concerned for the people that that happens to who either are in the public system and don't have an avenue and the public system is just so overstretched or they're in the private system, but they haven't yet got an obstetrician because sometimes you don't get, you know, even in the private system, you don't get an obstetrician until you're much further along. So I worry about those people. One of my interviewees actually, she has big problems with her kidneys and she's used, she has an incredibly high sort of pain threshold because of those issues. And when she had her miscarriage, she was on the floor and she thought she was going to die. Like she was in so much pain and she called the early pregnancy assessment clinic, which is the the clinic that deals with pregnancies before 12 weeks or before 20 weeks, depending on the clinic. She said, like, I don't know. Um, she said, I'm in so much pain. I don't know what to do. And I'm scared my partner to leave me in case I'm going to like bleed out or something. And and the midwife on the phone said, calm down, dear. It's just a miscarriage. Oh, my God. I mean, like, the and, and it just shouldn't be this easy for me to find. Like, you know, I go on my Twitter account and I say, I'm looking for someone who's had an experience of X or of Y. And, like, they just, like, I couldn't possibly include all these stories, these terrible stories. Like, there were so many. And it just, and that's how I knew there's a massive problem. 
in this area of medicine, huge problem. Um, and yep. it's, you know, and it shares a lot of the same issues with like the endometriosis care and women's chronic pain care or, you know, um, chronic pain care for people with uteruses and, um, and they're all related. And there is an issue of misogyny in here that affect the way that we are cared for. I reckon that's a really good point to make because I'm, I haven't even got halfway through all the things I wanted to ask you and I can't keep going, unfortunately, but it really does show how much there is that we haven't explored or talked about or know about with miscarriage. And I'm sorry to cut you off, Isabel, because I really <laughs> would prefer to keep going, but um, thank you for giving the insight you have today and for writing this book, because I feel like I really do feel like it's the first of its kind and it will make a huge difference. So thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me and thanks for reading the book. Thank you. That's journalist Isabel Oderberg. Her book is called Hard to Bear and you'll find a link to where you can get a copy in the notes of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the Listener app. And don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.